Once upon a time, I wish in a far-off kingdom, more than anything, into the woods to get the thing that makes it worth the journeying, into the woods to see the kid, to sell the cow, to make the potion, to see, to sell, to get, to bring, to make, to live, to go to the festival, into the woods. Agony, all the torture they teach. What's as intriguing or half so fatiguing as what's out of reach? And once we're past, let's hope the changes last. Beyond woods, beyond witches and slippers and hoods, just the two of us. Although how can you know who you are till you know what you want, what you don't? So then which do you pick? Where well, you're safe out of sight and yourself, but where everything's wrong. Or where everything's bright and you know that you'll never belong There are big, tall, terrible, awesome, scary, wonderful giants in the sky And I know things now, many valuable things that I hadn't known before Do not put your faith in a cape and a hood They will not protect you the way that they should now I understand, and it's time to leave the world. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios, this week on Broadway for Sunday, October 9th, 2022. On the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia, Janetessa Fox, and Jan Simpson. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes and Disagreements is now available and can be purchased wherever you find finer books. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many of the places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Jenna Tessa Fox. Jenna has written about theater for many publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, and HowlRound. She's a member of the League of Professional Theater Women and Drama Desk and is a contributor to Broadway Video. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. How are you doing? Doing well. Good to see you back in the uh, this week on Broadway. Good to be back. Thank you. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is a theater journalist who writes the blog Broadway and Me and hosts the Broadway radio podcasts Stagecraft and All the Drama. She has twice served as a Pulitzer Prize juror. Hello, Jan. How are you? I'm fine. I'm happy to be here. Michael is down in D.C. this week, and he will return next week with his updates from D.C. He's seeing... Something. <laughs> Maybe he told me like ten times. Guys and dolls. I think he's seeing guys. Yeah, and that's dolls. right. That's right. Yeah, because yes. he's in it. Yeah, yes. that's right. Yeah. Exactly. And I think he's go. I think he's going to uh, arena stage or something else for something's mm-hmm. down there. But we will find out next week. Mm-hmm. So Peter, mm-hmm. uh, do you have any good ideas? <laughs> uh, well, it was nice to go to the Players Club last week to see the Idea Awards. Now, of course, sometimes awards get lost in the shuffle because everything seems to happen in June. But um, here we were uh, in October at the Players Club, a marvelous place uh, where the portrait of Alfred Drake is worth going into uh, alone. But anyway, Brett Adams and Paul Reich. Uh, They were lifelong partners, and Brett Adams was a very famous and important agent. So uh, they decided that they would start a foundation, and they would give out awards to people who have great ideas. So that's uh, and of course, (laughs) great ideas involved with the theater. So uh, there's a Distinguished Career Award, and uh, that was given to Deb Margolin, uh, who really has done some wonderful work. Um, Imagining Madoff is a particular favorite of mine. Uh, Three Seconds in the Key, if you saw that one was uh, pretty good too so anyway um she got the uh, distinguished career award and many people may know her name from those plays and others but in the years to come i'm sure you will um know ankita raturi john michael lyles uh and daniel alexander jones now anika wasn't there i'm sorry to say um but um we'll have to wait and see what she's like but John Michael Lyles performed. He was really quite wonderful because he got the, the Musical Theater Award along with Daniel Alexander-Jones, um, who, by the way, uh, is a, a, a professor at Fordham and um, really has been doing a lot of um, teaching in his time. But obviously, he's no kid. And it's really wonderful when somebody who uh, is not, well, let me put it this way, so many um, 
competition, say, for emerging playwrights, you know, which means young. So it's really nice that somebody who's uh, been a professor uh, in, in a, certainly a prestigious university uh, gets an award as well. So lovely ceremony. And certainly Sheila Ray, who is a, a, a terrific MC. Uh, was uh, there to do uh, her part, and she did a very nice job in introducing everybody. So a good time was had by all. But here's my point. Make sure that you find out about this foundation, if indeed you're a playwright, um, a composer, a lyricist, that type of thing. Brett and Brett N, not A-N-D, N, Brett N, paulfoundation.org that's where you go and um, i would love to see people next year at that ceremony who are listening to us right now that would be a wonderful thing and i hope it happens i have the link to that in the show notes it's a hard url to save just through uh <laughs> through listening to it so if you want to visit that uh website uh click on the show notes and you'll be able to get to it very quickly so mm -hmm. first up the three of you have seen Leopoldstadt, uh, so why don't we go with uh, Jenna? Jenna, why don't you start us off on this? Sure, happy to. Um, yeah, so uh, if you know that Tom Stoppard's latest play is about a large and blended Jewish family in Vienna, and that it covers 56 years starting in 1899, you know it's not going to be a light little comedy. Uh, we've got a very good idea of what is going to happen to the, well, to at least many of the characters in the play from the moment we meet them. And even before we get to all the intra and inter family dramas, we're already anxious for them. Uh, I mean, it's stoppered, so obviously Leopold Stott's going to take on a lot of weighty themes, but it kind of surprised me that the overarching theme for this play is surprisingly universal for Stoppard. It focuses on identity in a changing world, particularly for Jews who want to connect with the broader world while holding on to their heritage and, yes, I'm going to say it, their traditions. Uh, so it follows the uh, two extended families uh, that are connected through marriage, the Mares and Jacobovitz clans. And I'm, oh my God, I can't, I'm, wow, my Yiddish ancestors are already cringing <laughs> my pronunciations. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, many of the family members have come to Vienna from the Pale of Settlement. They've been fleeing pogroms and they've worked to assimilate into mainstream Viennese society. Some have even converted to Christianity. But even though Judaism to them is not their most defining uh, characteristic to the world around them. It is. The anti-Semitism is all around them, and they are never allowed to forget that they are either Jewish or they're Jewish adjacent. And I thought it was kind of fascinating that it's never made clear which one is meant to be worse in the course of the play. Uh, as the first half of the 20th century sprawls out, uh, the family situation gets worse. We know all their intellectualism and their connections with Vienna's glitterati, and there's a lot of name dropping, uh, is not going to be enough to help them. The, the play's most chilling scene, and it's possibly one of the most frightening scenes I've seen on a stage in a very long time, brings all the terror of Kristallnacht into the family's upper middle class living room but it doesn't bring the violence in. The violence is all implied. Uh, the language of the Nazi who comes in to catalog the family is just horrifying in its casual cruelty and its dehumanization. And even if we don't see all the glass being broken outside, we can see everything that this family believes in and values being broken in front of them. And it's all the more horrifying for how still the scene is. And I think this is where Patrick Marber's direction really, really shines. And it, with such little movement, he's able to convey absolute terror. And I was holding my breath throughout a lot of the scene. It's that well-written and well-staged. And I should mention the scene preceding that is hilarious. It's staged as a farce. There's wordplay. There's literal running around through doors like you know, Scooby-Doo almost. Mm -hmm. So yes, there is a balance to all the ugliness. And 
Marber's work for that scene is also really excellent. Comedy is all about the timing. And he does beautiful work with Stoppard's words and Stoppard's, you know, very dense, rich language that he's famous for. Uh, I, I'm just really impressed with how he balances farcical comedy in one scene with absolute terror in the next. Uh, there are, I, I read 31 actors on the stage. Looking through the program, I counted 38, mm. including all the doubles and the standbys. Thank God for producers and directors who will take risks on new plays with large casts. Um, very notable among the 31st, 31, and we would be here all day if we were going to talk about how great each of them, uh, all of these actors are. But David Crumholtz, who I still think of as a teenager, I refuse to believe he's grown up, uh, is absolutely heartbreaking as uh, Hermann Mertz. He's uh, a man who's always looking for ways to keep his family safe. And in each scene throughout the play, we see another effort he has made to protect himself, protect his family, protect as many people as he can. Uh, Brandon Uranowitz does beautiful work as a mathematician because, yes, this is Stoppard. Did you think you were getting a Stoppard play without <laughs> mathematics? No, you're not. Go sit down. Uh, he also plays a really traumatized survivor in the play's final scene uh, and just does amazing work balancing those two different characters. The cast does wonderful work as a whole, as a unit, another sign of a very good director. Uh, and got a shout out to the creative team as well. Uh, Richard Hudson's set is gorgeous. It, cover, it brings us from this upper middle class luxury at the turn of the century with everything you would expect, you know, ornaments everywhere, lots of decoration. And by the end, the room is this sparse utilitarian shell 50 years after the fact. And it took me a moment to realize at the end, this is the same room. We've never left this room. Every scene has taken place in the same space. Watching that room lose all its color and its personality over the years visually reflects the character's losses and it's wonderfully effective. Uh, Neil Austin's lights also, they do a great job of conveying the emotion of each scene from the cozy domesticity in the beginning to the cold isolation later on. There's some great video design by Isaac Madge uh, that keep, gives us a sense of time and place from scene to scene. And uh, Bridget Reifenstuhl's costumes, the same. They let us see a changing time, changing social status over 50, 50 years. Um, I feel like the, the most important thing, like despite the sprawling time frame and the huge cast, Leopold Stadt may be one of Stoppard's most intimate plays uh, because it is partially based on his own family and his personal history. It feels a lot more personal than a lot of his other more academic or experimental plays. Uh, there's a website uh, with a lot of information about Stoppard's family and you can read the connections. He doesn't mention Leopoldstadt in the, on the website specifically, but you, if you see the play and then read this uh, interview, you can definitely see all the parallels. Uh, and he's, he's, oh, right. And the, the website also includes a family tree for the play's different generations, which is really helpful to read up on before you go in because it can be really hard to keep track of who's related to who. The characters also have a hard time keeping track of who's related to who, so don't feel bad. Um, and Stoppard has said this may be his last play, which uh, if it is, this is a great one to go out on, but obviously I hope he's still writing uh, many more. But as a personal piece, uh, it's absolutely it's a lovely, lovely show and definitely worth seeing. Okay. Jan, what did you think of it? I was disappointed. Yeah, um, yeah I really, really was. Um, I went into this with uh, high hopes, um, in part because it was based, uh, I'd read about how it was based on Stoppard's family and that it was his most intimate work. And also because um, my uh, college uh, advisor and later friend for the rest of her life was a Viennese Jew who did mm. escape 
uh, from the Nazis. And she lived in the world that this play uh, creates. She lived in a very assimilated uh, world, a very artistic world. Um, her mother was a painter uh, and a writer. And so I went in really wanting to embrace this play. I felt as though I were looking at someone else's photo album and that it was filled with pictures of people I didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, I found it much too difficult to keep track of who the people were. And so I wasn't invested in who, what happened uh, uh, to them. The story, obviously, the story of uh, Jews believing that uh, this Nazism thing would pass has been told many times. And so I was looking for something uh, a little bit more, a little bit more distinctive in this telling. And for me, I didn't get that. Um, a, a good friend said to me, um, maybe it's because you're not Jewish and it didn't speak to you. And I thought about that really hard. And I don't think that's the case because earlier this year, Joshua Harmon uh, had his play, A Prayer for the French Republic, mm. which dealt with uh, both what was going on in uh, Europe in the 1930s and the anti-Semitism that is springing up, unfortunately, now uh, in Europe and juxtaposed the two. And I was terribly moved uh, by that play. So I don't think you need the immediate identification uh, to, to, to understand this play, but whatever you need to really uh, click into Leopoldstadt, I'm afraid I miss. Okay, Peter, what about your opinion? Well, uh, it's a play that's two hours and 10 minutes long. There's no intermission. I felt I was in the theater five minutes. Uh, you really <laughs> feel that there's a master playwright here. He knows exactly what to do, exactly at what moment. So um, I was tremendously impressed by that. Jesse Green said um, what I was thinking. Boy, is this a play full of dramatic irony where the audience knows what's going to happen, but the characters on stage don't. And um, that's what's really effective here. Yes, it does go through time. And there's a scene in the 30s, as we say, with Crystal Knock, and you really think, well, I'm in for something really very severe that's going to come in the 40s. We're going to deal with the camps and uh, how awful, uh, unspeakable they were. No, he spares us that. We go from the 30s to the 50s, and, um, and he he knows there's enough on stage that's powerful that we don't need to go to, um, that route. So I thought that was um, terrific as well. Um, the, uh, it's not it's not complicated, and certainly Stoppard's work has become increasingly complicated uh, as time has gone on. And this one here does not involve. Uh, yes, of course, as uh, Jen said, the math is there. But nevertheless, it's not. If you feared Stoppard in the past because he got um, tremendously difficult, um, no, this is not one of those situations. But the real thing I want to talk about is Brandon Uranowitz, mm -hmm. and when he was a little boy, his father actually came to the star ledger with him to introduce him to me and the kid was very embarrassed by it you know here's my daddy take me around saying i'm going to be a big star well it turned out to be true um mm. what's really ironic is the fact that um he was in ragtime at some point <clears throat> and um you know so you 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 start thinking oh here's a kid who can sing and dance okay so you know he's in this musical and certainly he's done his share of musicals and the one thing i want to stress here is that when a friend was having a birthday and i said what do you want to see he said oh can we go see an, an american in paris which i had already seen it was it was a year or so old at that point and we went and brendan duran was had to start the show and I'm telling you, he started with such fervor that I thought to myself, this guy is really keeping this company on its toes. That with, with this type of passion, the same opening night passion that he gave, 
they have to reach that level as well. They're going to look foolish if indeed they don't try as hard as he does. And I really thought that was terrific. And since then, of course, he has done non-musicals. Um, he was certainly wonderful uh, in Burn This, uh, terrific mm-hmm. in that. I, I thought he was just, just wonderful. He was very good in uh, Baby It's You. But nevertheless, well, I, that's a musical, of course. I shouldn't, uh, but my point is it's hard to look good in a bad show and he certainly did there so uh so here he is and he really is doing such an amazing job playing a guy named Ludwig and um he's the mathematician in fact and there's a scene in which he and his uh brother-in-law argue about um anti-semitism he sees what's going on the brother-in-law doesn't and yeah it, he also has a a, a very fascinating moment with a, a cat's cradle he he um mm-hmm. talks about geometry in the cat's cradle and uh, i don't know if you know what that is that's a string thing um it's um read kurt vonnegut's cat's cradle and it'll tell you more about that and you should anyway it's a great book anyway um he's very very potent in that scene too so it's really wonderful to see a kid all grown up and doing such phenomenal work and getting to really uh, be very well known that um, I remember being in the theater, um, not for this show, but for um, Burn This and the person behind me saying, oh, oh, it's that guy. And yes, indeed, um, it's going to change from, oh, it's that guy to, oh, it's Brandon Uranowitz. And this is going to be one of the reasons why. Okay. So uh, that is uh, three very Different points of view on the, on the same show, <laughs> which uh, very you know very often happens. It's, every show is not for everybody. That's right. Sure. Um, but that's Leopoldstadt. It's playing through March twelfth, twenty twenty three. So they have scheduled a long run for this, and uh, we'll see how it goes. So we will. Nick, next up, we have Cost of Living at the Manhattan Theater Club's Samuel J. Friedman Theater. So uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on that? Well, Cost of Living was done some years ago at the Manhattan Theater Club, and um, it deals with uh, people who are having a tough time of it. Uh, One is um, a double amputee. Uh, We get the impression it happened through a disease, um, and um, she's separated from her husband. And now, of course, she needs him, but she doesn't want to need him. And he, ironically enough, needs a job. Um, And he says, you know, if you're going to hire somebody, you might as well hire me. Uh, And that's a big (laughs) question mark, you know, I mean, because as I say, the separate is so, whoa, I mean, do you really want somebody who has shown a disregard for you has gone with another woman and um he's going to take care of you now and especially it's 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 so um difficult for so many people who have had amputations to be uh, seen in that light he's going to have to bathe her and boy uh, there's a scene involving bathing that's um amazing that got a real gasp from the crowd as well it should so um now katie sullivan who played it off broadway is here again uh, however, David Zayas has replaced the other actor, and he's an actor that we've gotten to know a bit over the years. Um, <laughs> he, he made his debut in Anna in the Tropics, and that was almost 20 years ago. And this oh. is only his, 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 it's only his second Broadway appearance, but um, he's done a lot of work off Broadway, and he's done very, very well. And he really is exactly what this production needed. So I was very glad to see him uh, in the show. So um, now that's one story. The other story involves um, a a gentleman with cerebral palsy. He's got a lot of money. He can afford to have somebody come in and help him. And again, Greg Mazzala, who did it off-Broadway, is is doing it again. But we have another cast replacement here, and that's Carrie Young, who's making quite a name for herself. And she's going to a woman who's uh, been hired to help him. And uh, she really comes to care about him. Really comes to care about him. And in a way, her hopes will be dashed and decimated as time goes on. I won't be more specific than that. But let's talk about Carrie Young, who um, I first saw playing like a street smart, tough kid. I don't remember the play. I remember it was at the Duke. But that's where I first saw her, and I thought she was sensational. And the next play I saw her in, she was playing a street smart, tough kid. And the next play I saw her in, she was playing a street smart, tough kid. And I was getting tired of it. Um, and it is so good to see her now getting the chance 
And that's the operative words here, getting the chance to play different roles. Uh, so um, it was really wonderful, wonderful to see her in Clyde's. Uh, that was her Broadway debut. Uh, we gave her a Theatre World Award for that, in fact, because uh, we give them for Broadway debuts, even if they've been off Broadway for 18 times. So um, so here she gets to play Sensitivity. She is a street smart person. She's been around. And you find out at the end of the play um, how she's had to adapt to the streets. But but still, this is a performance that asks for more from her, not just side out of the mouth, wisecracking and um, showing that she knows the ropes. No, here she really has to play a full-bodied individual who really shows all her emotions, and she does it extraordinarily well. So I was very glad to see that she's getting more and more opportunities. Now, this is not an easy play in some instances. We are talking about cerebral palsy and amputations, and um, that is is not exactly something a lot of people want to um, have an experience with after dinner so uh but the play's the thing and it's a very good one and it has so many twists and turns and complications that you will be engrossed by it another play without an intermission and that's all for the best as well let's keep the momentum going and we switch from one scene to the other from the other to the other and just when you think that's what's going to happen all the time the last scene uh involves something more complicated and much more moving. And you know, when you can really bring out a blanket and get a reaction from an audience, that tells you a lot too. So uh, the cost of living um, is, is, is something that is even mentioned in the play. Those words never show up, but we understand them by the time it's over. Okay. Uh, Jan, you also saw this. What did you think? I love this play. Um, I also saw it when it was, uh, at Manhattan, um, theater club, it's being done by Manhattan theater club again, but right now it's on Broadway and it was off Broadway in 2017 and it won the Pulitzer prize in 2018. Um, Martina Mayoke is the, the playwright and I just think she is one of the best young playwrights working uh, today. The thing about this play, when you describe it to people, is that it does sound, as, as Peter said, as though it's heavy lifting. This is a really funny play as well. Um, there, uh, she has a, a, a wry sense of humor and the, that, she gives to uh, the characters and the thing that's that I particularly liked when I first saw it and liked all over again is that all of these people are real full rich people and often when people are writing about people with disabilities they make them noble or they make them pitiful the, the characters who have disabilities in this play are full characters. They're full people. Sometimes they're um, annoying and you don't like them. Uh, sometimes they are uh, just the funniest and wittiest of, of the characters on stage. Uh, both of those roles are played by people who have those disabilities. Uh, Katie Sullivan is a para-Olympian, and she is not a quadriplegic. She uh, doesn't have uh, uh, legs ben uh, below her knees. Uh, she uses... Uh, devices to to do her her running um, as an Olympian. Uh, uh, Greg Muscala does have um, cerebral palsy, although his case is not as severe as that of the character that he's playing. The part that David Zayas plays is a wonderful role. It was played wonderfully by an actor named Victor Williams um, off-Broadway. I think it was originated by Wendell Pierce, who's now uh, on Broadway in Death of a Salesman, when it had a tryout in Williamstown. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful role, and, and David Zayas fills it beautifully. This is a play that if you are a person who really loves good drama, good theater, 
you should see. It's a wonderful book. Well, there can't be a stronger recommendation than that. (laughs) (laughs) Cannot wait to see this. (laughs) Don't forget that uh, Jan interviewed Martina on All the Drama, uh, I guess uh, November of 2021. I'll pull a link to that in the show notes so that you can uh, go back and listen to that interview. So, Jan, you got over to the American Airlines Theater to see the Roundabout Theater Company's uh, production of 1776. Uh, So tell us about it. 1776 is one of my favorite musicals. And um, I'm going to do a slight detour and and tell a small story about it before I talk about this production. Um, When I was in college, I went to a school that had a fun and they called it the frivolity fun. And it had been created because there was this woman who had gone to the school many uh, years before I did. And she was a scholarship student and she had to work very hard and didn't get to do very much. But she obviously had a great personality because her classmates really loved her. They really adored her. And when she got out of college, they were all very happy because now she could Uh, go off and start her life and do all the things she'd been denied to do when she was in school and working. And she died. She died in her 20s, very young. Mm -hmm. And her friends got together and they decided to create this fund. And the idea was that students could go and apply for $100, but you could not spend it on anything school related. It had to be fun. I had a friend who went, she was invited to a fancy dance at some school and she went and uh, got money from the fund and bought a dress. I went to the Frivolity Fund and asked for my $100 to see plays during my spring break. This will really date me because I was able to use (laughs) that $100 to see eight shows oh my god (laughs) i went every moment there was a show that i could see and one of those shows was 1776 the thing that's interesting to me now and i even did some research yesterday is i can only remember one other show i saw during that time. But 1776 never left my mind. I was knocked out by it. And then uh, a few years later, they made a movie with the pretty much all of the original cast, um, uh, particularly William Daniels, who plays 1776, is the story of the days leading up to and the contentious debate leading up to the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. And John Adams, who was the greatest proponent of the founding fathers of complete separation from the British, he just wanted to get them out of here. And he was played by William Daniels in a wonderful Um, you know, just put his mark on it uh, performance. And that performance is captured in the movie. And just about every 4th of July, Uh I watched some of that movie. Mm -hmm. I love this musical. Mm -hmm. And so I am really sorry to say how much I disliked this production. The thing that... uh, they are marketing uh, for this production is that it has been cast with all uh, uh, the entire cast is made up of female identifying uh, performers, uh, female performers, non-binary performers, trans uh, performers. Um, And I love the idea of seeing so many um, women on a stage. So I was up for going in uh, to see that. The problem for me is that they don't do anything with it. And so it becomes a gimmick. I called it um, 
a, a concept without a cause. Today, when shows are being revived, uh, often the idea is, what is the show telling us about now? Why are we reviving uh, this show? Uh, when a company was uh, revived recently, Bobby was made a woman to you know varying success. Um, the current production of uh, Death of a Salesman that's going to open the Loman family, the central family, the salesman and his family are African-American. Uh, which, again, changes something about, without changing the text, changes something about the way in which we see this play. This play doesn't do any of that. Uh, it just, this production doesn't do any of that. They make some attempts to, to, to graph on some awareness of, oddly, when you're doing a production that is focused on gender by casting all these female identifying per, uh, performers, it leans into or tries to lean into making some comments about race. A number of the actors are uh, are women of color, but the ways in which it does uh, deal with race are somewhat heavy-handed. The acting and um, is uneven. I just have to be quite honest about it. Uh, the central performance of uh, John Adams is played by um, a woman named Crystal Lucas Perry. Uh, she's going to be leaving the performance in a couple of weeks because she's going into the play uh, Ain't No Mo. She is a very um, engaging performer. She sings well, but John Adams is supposed to be a pain in the butt. <laughs> She's no pain in the butt. You know, when they're saying "sit down, John," or "you're obnoxious, John," you're thinking, "No, she's not. Mm. No, he's not." Mm. And the one of the central things that makes 1776 so remarkable I think is we know how it's going to end there was a declaration of independence but as you're watching it the usual productions you're thinking are they going to make it mm -hmm. and part of the, the the reason for the suspense is because usually very prominently displayed is a calendar and you see them moving closer and closer to that date of July 4th, and they are divided. They are divided over the issue of race, over the issue of slavery, should slaves be included in this declaration of independence. The South will not go along with it if it does. And so that is the great compromise that um, is made. No spoiler alert. This was 1776. <laughs> um, and in this play, in this production, they do away with the calendar. And so every once in a while, a projection comes on and you see a date, but by the time they got to the end, I was thinking, what day is this? <laughs> and that is not what you want in a 1776. I, I was just so, so disappointed. That calendar and that scoreboard is extraordinarily important. It's one of the reasons the movie isn't nearly as potent as the stage show, because you need to look when you need to look and see where are they now? Oh, my mm -hmm. God, it's June 28th. Wait a minute. Mm -hmm. Only six people are saying yes. Six are saying no. And one is making no commitment whatsoever. And it's June 28th. You mean in six days they're going to fix it? And I mean, that guy in Pennsylvania is never going to. But the point is, you need to see it when you need to see it. And in mm -hmm. the movie, the sad thing is that they only show it every now and then. You see somebody tearing off the uh, day by day calendar. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. what happens. And you have to retain it. But mm -hmm. you don't. 
you don't mm -hmm. retain it because the the dialogue is so potent and the the strife is so intense that you lose track of what day and what the score is so that is a fatal flaw i go wednesday um and i'm hoping for the best well i wish you well thank you yeah my I, hero I, as you always uh, have told me peter i, I hope you enjoy it uh, <laughs> i'd much rather you have a good time than agree with me is my favorite that's it that's your line how do you quoted, phrase it <laughs> yes i actually quoted you peter when i was telling a friend about leopoldstadt I uh -huh. said, as Peter Felicia says, uh, <laughs> I was yeah. trying to remember how you phrase it. But yes, I I completely agree. Mm -hmm. Do you guys not have your coffee mug with that saying on it? <laughs> we should have mug. a coffee mug with that. Y'all got coffee mugs? We, yeah. all, we do have a coffee that? mug. Yeah. We I, do ironically, <laughs> ironically enough, uh, Greg Christensen, one of our listeners who often answers the trivia question, had a <laughs> coffee mug made with that on it oh, you really did yeah so i love it, I love so. it. <laughs> as uh paul witty says in the chat room pledge now and you will get your coffee mug or, <laughs> or your uh the cloth uh tote bag and things like that we have them all available at the broader oh, radio oh, store oh, tote bags yes indeed yeah. For a exactly. minimum of donation. <laughs> you know, we do have a $1 million level at the, at the Patreon. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> uh, be sure to uh, be the first to get in on that $1 million level. It's uh, you'll be happy to note it's not a it's not a monthly charge. It's just a yearly charge. <laughs> I see. So, good. Don't don't tell them it's only yearly. Make sure they know. No, it should be monthly. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. Um, 1776 to be continued. Mm -hmm. I am afraid for what Michael Portantier is going to say. We will see that in the upcoming weeks. So next up, Jenna got over to the public theater to see Baldwin and Buckley at Cambridge. So Jenna, yes. tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, much as Jan was disappointed by Leopoldstadt, I was rather disappointed in this piece, although I am still thinking about it and processing it. So maybe my opinion will change. I'm not sure. Uh, I think uh, I'm embarrassed to say this is the first show I think I've seen from uh, Elevator Repair Service, the experimental theater company. So I can't compare it to any of the other pieces that they've done. Um, from what I understand, ERS usually works with uh, pre-existing texts mm -hmm. that may not seem inherently dramatic, but the team finds the drama within those pre-existing texts. And I should also say, uh, well, I'll backtrack. Uh, so this piece does not have much of a story. It recreates the 1965 debate between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley, uh, arguing whether, in their words, the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. This debate was held at Cambridge Union over in England. Uh, I have not seen the video of this debate, although apparently it is on YouTube and I need to sit down and watch it. So I can't speak to how accurately the play recreates the debate. I can only talk about the play as a play rather than a recreation. Um, using the transcript of a debate makes the play very intellectually stimulating. And I love that. I really appreciate how ERS trusts the intelligence of their audience to want to hear a debate between two brilliant men. Um, but it's also a lot less dramatically effective than something with a bit more fiction could be. Uh, as with history, uh, Buckley speaks after Baldwin, um, but Baldwin has a much more powerful speech, meaning it's an anticlimax. Um, Buckley's rebuttal in this speech is cringe-inducing. It's disturbing, certainly. But to have this powerful, passionate plea for understanding and justice be followed by this smarmy, self-satisfied explanation of why that justice is unwarranted is somehow an emotional letdown. Uh, it's one of those cases in which sticking with the history is not as dramatically effective as rearranging some things could be to have a more traditional dramatic arc with the cli emotional climax of the piece coming a bit later. Um, Greg Sargent plays Baldwin and also conceived of the piece. And if, if it were just Greg Sargent standing on stage alone, 
uh, for an hour, and yes, the play is only an hour long, uh, it would be worth it because his performance is just brilliantly powerful. Uh, during his portion of the debate, he conveys all this barely suppressed and fully justified rage. He makes his case brilliantly. He appeals to the humanity of the audience, sharing personal human examples of injustice and oppression and dehumanization. But even when he's not talking, even when he is sitting beside one of the two or behind one of the two tables on the stage, he still manages to steal the show. And that is really saying something. Uh, Benjelosa Williams does some very nice work as Buckley. He nicely conveys the character's hubris and condescending attitude without doing an impression of Buckley, which I kind of liked. I appreciated not looking for an impersonation, but just appreciating the performance. But then as he's talking, Sergeant, as Buckley is listening, and silently reacting. And it is a perfect, perfect example of how so much of acting is reacting and how an actor knows, has to know how to listen on stage. Sargent lets us see how Baldwin absorbs every offensive word Buckley utters. And of course, uh, he utters an awful lot of them. Uh, and if you're going to be offended by casual and not so casual racism and blatant white supremacy. This may not be the play for you. Um, but he also lets us see how those words hit like a blow. And this is why I really wish he had had a chance for a proper rebuttal after Buckley's, uh, Buckley's portion of the debate. Because to have him sit there silently before moving into the fictional final moment of the play isn't the emotional powerhouse I think this moment deserves. Um, Christopher Rishi Stevenson plays Jeremy Burford, a white Cambridge student who supports Buckley and conveys very similar smarminess in, in his introductory portion of the debate. The device of having a black actor play Burford is really fascinating and I'm still mulling that over. Um, I don't know if it's meant to subvert the racism in Burford's words or if it's meant to lessen the blow given what follows. And I'd be very interested to hear other people's takes on, uh, on that casting decision. Uh, Gavin Price, a white actor, plays the white David Haycock, who supports Baldwin's position. And he also opens the play uh, out of character with a land acknowledgement. Uh, it's a decidedly less showy role, but he does very nice work with it. Um, and then I mentioned that there is a fictional moment uh, after the debate. It's a short scene. Uh, and as far as I know, it's the one fictional moment other than the land acknowledgement. Uh, I don't want to spoil the scene, but it really nicely emphasizes how far we still have to go and how little has changed over the course of 57 years since the debate was held. Um, John Collins' direction is very nicely understated. And again, I really liked how he had the team you know, the five actors on the stage working together, even though they rarely uh, address one another. They're mostly speaking to us uh, in the audience. And Alan C. Edwards' lighting is really impressive for this. I saw no colored gels in the lighting's rig. It was all plain white academic light, as you would see in uh, an academic theater, would you call it? Auditorium, that's the word I'm looking for. Mm -hmm in an academic auditorium. And the lights for the much of the play remain up. And at several key moments, they don't, they're not just at half, they are bright. They are glaring and almost blinding. And the setup of the Anspacher Theater is a three quarters thrust. So most of the audience can see many other people in the audience. We are forced to look at each other as we're listening to this. And as we're listening to a Black man explain why he deserves justice and human rights and respect, and listening to white men explain, you haven't earned it, I was looking around the theater and noticing how very white that audience was, which made me very, very uncomfortable to be a white woman in a room of white people listening to this plea for respect and recognition. Uh, I 
really appreciate how the public has done a lot to diversify its audience. And I hope more people of color come to see the show. I'd be very interested to hear their interpretations of recreating this debate and how the debate affects them 57 years later. Um, I thought it was some very powerful performances, but emotionally, just the very structure of sticking to history made it somewhat of an emotional letdown. Uh, I'd be fascinated to revisit this piece later and see if it holds up with other theater companies uh, taking a stab at it and how different theater troops would uh, would interpret it. Okay, so that is uh, Baldwin and Buckley at Cambridge at the Public Theater in the Anspacher. It's through October 23rd, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Jan and Peter got their way over to the Linda Gross Theater for Atlantic Theater Company's production of I'm Revolting. So Jan, why don't you get us started on this? I was nervous um, about seeing this play. Uh, it is by a new playwright. Her name is Gracie Gardner. And it's set in the waiting room of a skin cancer clinic. And with the title, I'm Revolting, I thought, uh, I don't know. Is this going to be difficult to look at? And so on. All of that uh, dispelled. Uh, this was a, a work that I really enjoyed. We have four patients who come in, uh, three of them with, at various times, caretakers. And the theme of the play seems to be uh, about how people deal with uh, medical diagnoses and not just the person who is affected, but the people in their lives. Uh, I thought there was just across the board fine acting from the cast uh, in addition to the patients and their uh, family members. Uh, in one case, it's a sister and another a husband and another a mother. There are, there are two doctors, one an experienced doctor and the other a, a resident. Everybody did uh, uh, stellar work. And I'm going to give credit, some credit, a lot of credit <laughs> to uh, the director. I think it's Knud Adams. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his, his first name uh, correctly. It's spelled K-N-U-D. Maybe it's just Knud uh, Adams. Uh, earlier this year, he also directed a play called English, uh, at the Atlantic and the acting there too was just all everybody on the same wavelength no showiness so it didn't seem as though we were watching a play but as though we were sort of eavesdropping on the experiences these people had I think he's a very fine um, director and I think this uh, playwright Gracie Gardner uh, is someone to, 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 to keep an eye on. I have to say that one of the things I most love about going to the theater is finding uh, a fresh voice and looking forward to what he or she does next. And that's certainly the case for me uh, with Gracie Gardner and I'm revolting. Okay, Peter, what did you think? Like the cost of living, this is about people who are in trouble. Like the cost of living, it doesn't have an intermission. Uh, and like the cost of living, yes, it uh, does make time for humor. It's it's quite a good play, but there are things that um, struck me as very odd about it. Yes, mm -hmm. it takes place in a waiting room. So you have all these chairs lined up facing us, in the waiting room. And the doctor comes out. The doctor is played by Patrice Johnson Shivanis phenomenal performance you wish you had a doctor yeah. like this yeah phenomenal performance because you can tell she's caring but she's also no nonsense she's firm she's not cruel um she tells it like it is but not in a way that's didactic it's 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 an amazing thing and i i will remember it for some time all right 
So we have various uh, people. We have a young woman who's really concerned because she's having skin cancer on her nose and she doesn't want to look terrible. She's concerned about scars. She's concerned about how she looks. She has a sister played by Gabby Beans, whom I did not like at all, at all, at all, at all in the skin of our teeth, but I knew it was the direction. I knew it was the direction. And here we see her um, in a controlled performance. And it, it's it's a wonderful one. She plays her very busy sister, too busy to really give her a, enough time that she needs to support her. She gave every indication she would be there from morning, noon, and night uh, to help her sister. But it's busy at work, and I have responsibilities, and you just have to understand that's all there is to it. As bad as that is, we're going to meet another couple, where a husband and wife couple. And um, I'm afraid that my generation, the baby boomer generation, came up with the expression, I can't do this anymore. And as a result, I think people default to that when they just don't feel like doing something anymore and feel that that's a good excuse. It's not a good excuse, and it won't be a good excuse for this couple. Um, she's the one who's really in, in tough shape. By the way, if you're worried about seeing people really, 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 really in tough shape, no, they spare you that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not repulsive. Even The title is, is really off-putting. In that you really think you're going to see people who are really, really um, in awful trouble. No, no. I mean, of course they are. But my point is they don't look as bad as you probably think they will when you hear a title called I'm Revolting. So um, we also have a young man um, and his mother shows up, played by Laura Esteban, and she's uh, into holistic healing. And uh, if, you, if you have a good attitude, that's all it takes and all that kind of business. And we find out it's more complicated than that, as we probably thought when we walked in. Peter Jarity <laughs> plays an old crusty guy who comes out. He's, he's not afraid to say what everybody else is thinking. He'll say it. And uh, it's amazing for me to see Peter Jarity in this role because I first saw him at Trinity Square Repertory Theater. That's what it was called then. It's now Trinity in Providence, Rhode Island in 1968, playing Richard Miller, the young boy in our wilderness. And, you know, know, time passes, doesn't it? Anyway, so here he is as the crusty old guy, and he's terrific, just terrific. Now, there are things about this are a little strange, and one of them is the fact that um, the set design... And um, I hate to come down hard on uh, Marsha Ginsburg, but the thing is, I guess she wants to make a point that we're looking in on these people and we see ourselves because the set has, the walls are mirrors. Now, really, in a real skin cancer place, would the walls be mirrors where these poor souls can see each other, uh, what they look like in a mirror? I, I imagine a lot of these people avoid mirrors. So I thought that was really strange. Great point. Great point, Peter. <clears throat> the other thing that really bothered me tremendously is that many conversations that would be of a con- uh, confidential nature were taking place in this waiting room. True. One woman says, I don't want to go into the office. Uh, tell me right now. Okay, fine. Um, I do believe that wouldn't happen, but nevertheless, that issue is addressed. But for the other people, these are frank conversations about here's what you have to do. This is what we're going to do. And these things definitely would be done in office. I think the set should have been um, set up so that we had an office on each side of the stage where they went in and um, had these difficult conversations. Because I do not believe for a tenth of a second that indeed such a this there's talk of an amputation in in this um and you really would have that discussion with somebody in a waiting room where other people are listening no i don't think so so um i i don't know if um if the playwright who i agree gracie gardner has a tremendous future ahead of her and so does newt adams as director but but um really what would it take to do um, a little office to the side and they walk in there um it would also be more dramatic when people go in there to it's almost like you know they're they're walking to their doom you know as as much as you hate being in the waiting room in a strange way it's easier than being in the office because when you go into the office that's when you're going to hear the real um (laughs) skinny so whoa um i i do believe those are two flaws with it but no problem with the writing no problem with the acting. Everybody's quite wonderful. And uh, yes, I'm with Jan. Uh, Jan. Let's have more plays from Gracie Gardner. Peter, the uh, discussion about the waiting room. Yeah. I, I can absolutely see. 
excuse me, I can absolutely see your point. Um, but all of us, all four of us, I'm sure, have been on a New York City subway where somebody's had yes. a discussion on speakerphone that was just way too much information mm. that I wanted to know about them. <laughs> Yeah, I I do believe that doctors would be circumspect, though. Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) So, anyway. (laughs) So, I'm revolting at the Atlantic Theatre Company. Linda Gross Theatre is playing through October 16th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Finally, this morning, uh, Peter, you got over to here uh, to see Dodie and Diana. So, tell us about it. Hmm. Well, wouldn't you assume that a play called Dodie and Diana would deal with (laughs) Dodie and Diana? Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm in the wrong here, but I would think that would be the case. This is like you, you go to uh, the supermarket, you get your favorite flavor of uh, Haagen-Dazs ice cream, double chocolate chip. You, you, boy, you can't wait to delve into it. You get home, you open it up and it's vanilla. Um, <laughs> this, this is not about Dodie and Diana. It is not. It's about two people who are in a hotel room 25 years later. One's an actress, one's a businessman. I mean, what is is this? I mean, there's there's something about the fact that they have to stay in that room for three days. They cannot use cell phones. They cannot uh, have any contact with the outside world. And they do have one scene where they pretend to be Dodie and Diana, but good Lord, um, the fact that you, you're so flummoxed when, when the woman comes in from the bathroom and she looks nothing like Diana, well, there's good reason for it. She's not. But the point is you believe she's going to be. So, uh, so I found this play very frustrating and enough said. And their names aren't Dodie and Diana? We didn't get a playbill. <laughs> I don't know. I I didn't even get. Uh, I didn't even notice. Let me say that. Let me say. Let <laughs> give me the benefit of that. I didn't notice anything saying scan on this. Uh, uh, nothing like that. Uh, so um, so I don't know. I'm looking mm. at their website right now. Mm-hmm. They reach. They list just the cast. Uh huh. The just the cast members' names, but they don't have a character listed on the. Oh, yeah, they, they have. have a, they, they, they allude. Have a, yeah, they, they have a link to the. Uh, they have a link to the. Um, the programs on their website. Samira and Jason, are the character names. Samira. Yeah, and, I do remember that. Yeah, because my kids, my kids' name is Jason. That I, I do remember that now. So, uh, yeah, okay. Named after hmm. falsettos, Jason. No, he was born long before. He was probably born before William Finn was. <laughs> well, we can't top that, so let's wrap up for today. <laughs> before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayvideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your finer podcasts, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Jana, for Jenna, and me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, uh, Peter, what's the answer to last week's trivia? If you said January 9th, 1911 to the title character of a 1950s Tony Losing musical, you wouldn't quite answer the question she had about her life, but you'd have given her a hint. Why? Well, Louise and Gypsy asks, I wonder how old I am, considering that according to IBDB, the future Gypsy Rose Lee was known to be born on January 9th, 1911. That's the day from which you could start calculating. Tony Janicki vaulted back into first place, followed minutes later by longtime rival Paul Whitty, who was then followed by Mike Meany, Brigadier, J. Aubrey Jones, Jack Leshner, Justin Hogue, Deb Popple, Jeff Hickman, and John Conti. Now, let me say that more than one contestant said that Gypsy Rose Lee was actually born on January 8th, 1911. And much of the internet bears this out, but not IBDB. It does say January 11th, so... I wonder which day is right. (laughs) I wonder which date is right. New question. His real first name was Adolf, but he changed it by the time of his second Broadway appearance. His new and seemingly unique name was also the name of a character in a 21st century musical. What was Adolf's most more famous name? What was the 20th century musical that had a character with this name? 
Okay, if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox, Jan Simpson, and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. It's time to leave the woods. Mother isn't here now. Wrong things, right things. Who knows what she'd say? Who can say what's Nothing's true? Nothing's quite so clear now. Do things, fight things. Feel you've lost your way. You decide, but you, you are, are not alone. All right, mother, when? Lost the bills again. Punish me the way you did that. Give me claws and a hunch. Just stop away from this bunch. And the glue and the doom. Careful the wish you made. Wishes on children Careful the path they take Wishes come true